All right, if you would open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. This is our last Sunday in Daniel chapter 3. All right, Daniel chapter 3. Let's begin this way. What if you were the President of the United States? I know that's a stretch for all of us here. But it still works if you're a good citizen of the United States. And what if you were the President or a good citizen of the United States and you're told by God, now this part is also fiction because that doesn't happen. There are no more intra-Trinitarian conversations with you and the Godhead. So if he told you If he had this conversation with you and he told you that the United States would fall as a world power. To be replaced by another world power. I heard that. I heard that Virginia Yip from China. Did you hear that? She said by China. That's why you're here. I'm on to you, sister. All right, all right. All right. A world power. Not more just, more noble, or more honorable. A world power that's not more concerned with restraining evil. A world power that doesn't give a flip about promoting a just social order, that cares nothing about the good, the beautiful, and the true that God has placed in all his common creation will not and does not want to pursue the good, the beautiful, and the true in family relationships and the network and system and the fabric of the social systems in the country. No desire to pursue any educational, political, cultural, or economical good in a country. In fact, you're told that the U.S. is going to be replaced by a world power that's harder, harsher, A world power that's inferior to the United States, but more brutal, more harsh. Your way of life and that of your family and friends will be changed forever. It might and probably will be changed for the worse. The economy will fall, you'll lose your job, there's no hope for a new one. Upper educational systems like Baylor, down the tubes. Any educational system, down the tubes. Access to the abundant food supplies that you now enjoy, they'll be lost. No more HEBs, no more you want salt so you got 50 to choose from. Access to medical expertise and care and vital medicines, gone. Your home, your shelter, your clothing, your possessions, gone. Just living another day is uncertain. Just living another day might be uncommon. What would you do if you're given this news? How would you feel? Well, God gives Nebuchadnezzar this news in Daniel chapter 2. Let's look at how he responds and what he does when he hears this kind of news that the Babylonian kingdom will fall. And it will fall in harder, 
harsher, more brutal governments will take its place. Let's look at 3.1. This is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose heights was 60 cubits. That's 90 feet, 30 yards, 10 first downs, and its breadth, 6 cubits, 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, this is the news that Nebuchadnezzar hears in two. Remember, there's this, this divine dream. Daniel becomes the divine interpreter, the messenger. He interprets the message. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar responds in 3.1. He makes a colossal giant, is what he makes, a, a colossal image on the plains of Dura. Now, for the next couple of moments, we're going to get a little uncomfortable here. So I'm going to tell you right from the beginning, I'm uncomfortable. You're going to be uncomfortable. We're just going to be uncomfortable for a minute because we need to be. Okay? So I'm prepping us before we get uncomfortable. What do you do when you don't get what you want? What do you do when you don't get what you want? In other words, you don't get the boy you wanted, the boy you wanted to date, the boy you wanted to marry. What do you do? Those of you that are married, you realize that your spouse isn't what you wanted. Your spouse and your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. You're not getting what you wanted. So what do you do? Do you take control and begin to manipulate the situation or the person? Do you get bitter? Do you get angry? Do you get deeply depressed and discouraged? Do you begin to demand change in the person, demand change in the marriage, set some ultimatums? Do you divorce them? Look for someone you do want? Do you lose yourself in your work, in romance novels, in lust? What do you do? Children, what do you do when your parents tell you to do something you don't want to do? Your parents say, we want you to do this, and it's not what you want to do. Children, what do you do? When your parents say, Children, stop doing this, and you don't want to stop doing it. What do you do, children? What do we do? Do we stall? Do we challenge? Do we resist? Do we disobey? Do we throw a temper tantrum? What do you do when you don't get the respect that you want in a conversation or in an argument? You're in a conversation, could be friend or foe. And you're just not getting the respect that you want in that conversation. And it turns into an argument, and you know you're being disrespected in the conversation. What do you do? Do you get defensive? Do you fight back? Do you get real quiet and withdraw inside, and then you just can't wait to the first person you talk to, and you start gossiping and slandering the other person? Two more, and then we're okay. What do you do when you continually do not get the recognition and the acknowledgement that you deserve and that you desire in your vocation, in your call, in your job, at the personal achievement and the excellence that you're doing in your work or as a, as a mom and a homemaker and your, and your hard work and your 
excellence that you pursue and you don't get any recognition. You don't get any encouragement. In fact, you get just the opposite. You get criticism and you get torn down and you get belittled and you get more work and more demanded of you and lesser pay. How do you respond? What do you do? Do you seethe with anger? Do you look for the greener pastures? Do you get real deeply discontent? Discouraged and disengaged. Last one. What do you do when you're painfully aware that you're not where you thought you would be at this point in time in your life? You're single. You want to be married. You're married and have children. And you have trouble with both. You're at the same job, but you want it bigger and better. You're struggling with the same stuff you've always struggled with, and you've wanted God to change you. I mean, you prayed. You've been coming to church. You seek the scriptures. You wanted him to change you in this area of your life. But it seems that's a continual. You thought you'd be beyond what you're struggling with right now. You thought your child would be beyond what they're struggling with right now. You thought God would have transformed you by now, that it would be behind you, but you're still dealing with it. So what do you do? Do you give up? Do we run to counterfeit pleasures? Do we get angry with God? Okay, you get the point. What do you do when you don't get what you want? This passage is designed for those who don't get what they want. And it has a very specific direction to take you. Isn't that fascinating? Now remember, we're in a a story that has three movements. And the very first movement of this story is targeting people who don't get what they want. If that's not you, have Dr. Tandy check your pulse. If that doesn't apply to you. I think every one of us knows what it's like not to get what we want. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Daniel 3, 1 through 12, then we'll jump over to 16 and 18. All right, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image. This is his response to the bad news he got in two. Image of gold. We already explained that. Let's jump down to two. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces that came to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's a pattern here, isn't there? And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. If you'd like to join me, then feel free to do so. And whoever does not fall down and worship immediately shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that together King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the certain time, Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. 
they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. Every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, they're all blending together now, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. Worship the golden image that you have set up. 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Okay. If this be so, so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we ask your help this morning. I ask your help. We ask for word. We ask for power. We ask that you would grab our minds with doctrine and you would move our hearts with delight, resulting in deep, life-changing deeds. So fill us with your spirit, me to preach and teach and to get out of the way, and for all of us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are made anew. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel 3 is a story. Remember, it's one story about finding a new hope. There are three movements to the story. We started with the second movement, moved to the third movement, now we're going up to the first. Remember what the second movement was. If the story is about finding new hope, the movements are telling you how to find new hope. So the second movement was telling you how to find new hope in a fiery furnace. The third movement was telling you how to find new hope in the fourth man. Now, the first one is also designed to move you in the direction of finding new hope, but in the context of a particular life situation, when you don't get what you want. Okay? So let's unpack it. What's the first movement of the story? Here's the answer. Then we'll see it, and then it'll hit home. The first movement is the Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. Nebuchadnezzar, shockingly, is the main character in chapter 3. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you really start to look at the literature of chapter 3, you see that he's the main character. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends aren't. Daniel's not. In fact, we're all asking, well, where is he anyway? You know, what's that dog? You gotta, what's the dog you've got to find in the pages, the kids' books? Waldo. Yeah, where's Waldo? Well, where's Daniel. You know, he's nowhere to be found. Uh, He's not even mentioned in this passage, and no one knows where he is. I think the best explanation is found in 249. Look at 249. Daniel made a request to the king. He appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel is at Washington, D.C. This is a U.N. meeting in New York. 
That's what's taking place. So the three friends were put into the provinces of the empire. They're out there in the United Nations kind of work. Daniel's back at the king's court. That seems to be the best explanation. But also we need to recognize this is a very important point in the Bible. The Bible is not a comprehensive history book. It's not designed to give you a comprehensive history of Egypt. It's not designed to give you a comprehensive history of Alexander's rise and his conquests and not even Israel's history. The Bible is a theological history book. It has history for specific God theological truths. Okay? It's a theological, intentional, redemptive, historical book. It has a a purpose and intent by God to communicate an intended story within history. Okay? All right. So Nebuchadnezzar's all over chapter 3. His name's mentioned 15 times. He has seven full verses of him actually speaking. He begins and he ends the chapter. He begins it and he ends it. His words or thoughts of him. And most importantly, he alone gives the description of the most important person in this chapter, and that's the fourth man. He alone tells us what the fourth man is like. 24, 28, he tells us that. Now, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar does not get what he wants. What does Nebuchadnezzar want? He wants a, a great and glorious kingdom that extends forever. He wants a great and glorious name for himself that lasts forever. And then God comes in with this divine dream that frightens him and the kingdom. There needs to be a divine interpreter, a redemptive agent. And God sends Daniel to interpret the dream. And it's bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom will not last forever. His kingdom is soon going to fall hard. And of course, we're going to see it in a couple chapters when we see what happens with the Persians and how they come in and remember the writing on the wall and even as they're riding, the soldiers are storming the gates and takes and sacks the city, right? So what will Nebuchadnezzar do now that he doesn't get what he wants? We find the answer in verse 1. Let's look at it again. He made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The answer is, he turns to the work of his own hands to still try to secure what he wants. That's the answer. Okay? When Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get what he wants, he turns to the work of his own hands. Except this time, he's going to make it better, right? Remember, we have this ghastly giant in chapter 2. Well, he makes an image of a golden giant in chapter 3. All gold. So no, none of the lesser glory and the lesser greatness of silver and bronze that was found in chapter 2 that consisted of the ghastly giant. This one's all gold. None of the hard and harsher substance of iron, which was found in the ghastly giant, all gold. All golden in appearance, all golden in substance, all goldness in beauty, all goldness in longevity, on goldness for everlasting. All goldness, right? 
This giant image was priceless and perpetual. And basically what's happening is, is he's, he's creating this giant image, and he is saying to himself, probably, the nations of the world will unite around my vision for the world. They will unite around my kingdom. They'll unite around me. So Nebuchadnezzar, not Woodrow Wilson, had the first real vision for United Nations. Right? Now, if you and I have tendencies to read our Bible like a wooden literalist, we're going to miss, we're going to miss the Nebuchadnezzar in you impact. Why? Because we are never told in this text, woodenly, literally, why Nebuchadnezzar made the golden image. But if you are learning the process of growing to read your Bible contextually and particularly in its literary context, the literary context will move you in the right direction of interpreting why he built this golden image and thus its impact on you and me of the Nebuchadnezzar and all of us. Look at the first phrase. We kind of started saying it together. Look at the first phrase in in verse 1, he set it up. In verse 1, we have this phrase, he set it up. Now look at the last words of verse 2, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now jump down to the last words of verse 3, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now go to verse 5, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now go to verse 7, last words, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We got the picture. This phrase is used four more times throughout the rest of the chapter. It's used by every single character in chapter 3. It's used by the king himself. It's used by his advisors. It's used by the three friends. Every character says this phrase that he set up. The literary context of repetition is trying to get us to see why he set up the golden image. It was his response to not get him what he wanted. He was trying to secure what he wanted. Now here's the impact for you and me, because it goes beyond Nebuchadnezzar. The literary point here is trying to push to us that the point is not only what Nebuchadnezzar did when he didn't get what he wanted, but the point is what all humans do when they don't get what they wanted. We turn to the work of our own hands to try to secure what we want. In other words... We begin to construct an image and an idol out of what we want. We make a false god out of our desire that we didn't get. And we try to get it. Okay? And we bow down in false worship to this image that we make of our own desire. Now, I want you to get this point. It's so important to get this point. We're not given a value judgment on whether his desire is right or wrong. In fact, when you read the scriptures and it talks about passions and desires, there's several Greek words that can be used to identify whether the passion or the desire is talked about in terms of that's a wrong passion to have. 
No, no that, that's a bad passion. That's a bad desire. The scripture says that's a, it uses a specific Greek word, says avoid those, flee those evil desires of youth. But many times throughout the scripture, it just gives a generic word for desires and passions. And throughout the scripture, the issue is not necessarily what specific passion and desire you have. The issue is, is it ruling you? Have you made an idol or an image out of it? Okay. All right. The movement of the story is designed to move you away from making an idol out of our desires. Out of what we want when we don't get what we want. So this passage is actually designed to move us away from false hopes that disappoint us, that fail us, that fall short, false hopes that have no power to make us right before God, false hopes that have no power to give us a new heart and a new life, false hopes that have no power to actually satisfy the human soul, but instead sour the human soul and sour all of our relationships and bring nothing but more misery and compounded guilt and compounded corruption in all areas of our life. And we start looking like that which we bow down to. And this passage is designed to move you away from that and move me away from that. So right now, I know that many of you are probably beginning to be a little convicted about things that dominate you. You know there's some desires that dominate you. What I want you to do right now is hold it. If you want, confess it even now. Yes, Lord, I agree that is. But I want you to hold off for a little longer, and we're going to find out what we do with that, okay? All right, here's the first movement. What is supposed to be happening here is that the Lord is wanting to turn us from trusting in the work of our own hands when we don't get what we want to trust in the work of His hands when we don't get what we want. Do you see the difference? The passage is actually designed in two types of responses, and in Nebuchadnezzar, we see what happens when you don't get what you want and you turn to the work of your own hands. In the three friends, we see when they don't get what they want, they turn to the work and trust of the work of God's hands. See the difference? Let's unpack it a little bit. Here's how the idol-making dynamic works. Number one, you don't get what you want. When we make an idol, we don't get what we want. Now, at first, we don't know that's what's going on in our heart. We don't understand that's the core root issue that's taking place in our heart. What we know is we begin to see maybe some signs of it. And we start seeing signs of it in the cracks in our life. We see signs of it in the warning lights on the dashboard of our life. In other words, we start seeing cracks, warning lights in our behavior, in our response to what happens when we don't get what we want. For instance, you might see yourself respond, we'll call them thorns, we'll call them cracks, we'll call them warning lights. You might see yourself withdraw. You might see yourself become desperate and demanding and driven and perfectionistic. You might see yourself attack with outbursts of anger. You might see yourself have this simmering, seething bitterness and rage that just percolates below the surface. You might see yourself respond with deep discouragement and depression. You might see yourself start 
blaming others and blaming the situation. You might start feeling sorry for yourself and pouting and, and giving your spouse the silent treatment. I never do that. You begin to speak with a sharp tongue. You start eating more, watching more TV, going to a bad website. I think you get the picture. Now, when does this happen? When do you see this stuff happen? It starts with not getting what you want, but you're not sure that's what's going on, but you begin to see how you're responding when something happens that you didn't get what you want. Well, what kind of things, what kind of situations happen when you start seeing these thorns and start seeing these cracks? You start seeing these warning lights in the dashboard. Well, it can happen right in the middle of a conversation with someone. It can happen right in the middle of a church meeting. It can happen in the middle of family worship. It can happen in the middle of your work. It can happen amongst your friends. It can happen when you're not getting the peace and comfort that you want. When it eludes you. How do you respond? It can happen when your toys break. It can happen and make great distress and difficulty. It can happen in any situation and any contact with anybody. Here's the picture. The picture is this, in summary. A situation or a person bangs into you. You don't get what you want when the situation or the person bangs into you. Nebuchadnezzar, God, boom, your kingdom's fallen. I don't want that. That's how it starts. Situation, person, bangs into you. Okay? You don't get what you want. You turn to the work of your hands. You make an image or an idol out of what you want because you think what you want is your life. It's your comfort. It's your peace. It's your satisfaction. It's your hope. Well, how do you know you did that? Because you start seeing your response, your, your cracks, your warning lights, and how you respond. The adult Sunday school class was excited about its ministry. In fact, they bought and even installed the carpet in their new room. They were very excited to be used of the Lord. They decorated the room. They purchased the furniture for the room. They took ownership of this ministry. They took ownership of the room. They were going to use it as a tool of being used by the Lord. But then sadly, the church leadership came to the Sunday school class and told them they're going to have to. We've got to ask you to move out of that room. Because of bigger idea issues for the whole church that affect the whole church, we're going to have to rearrange some things and we're going to have to ask you to move out of your room. The adult Sunday school class did not get what they wanted. So they made an idol out of what they wanted. How do, how do we know this? They sued the church. They said, we're not leaving. Right? I mean, that sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? But what do you do and what do I do when we don't get what we want? Do we turn to the work of our own hands or do we turn to the work of someone else's hands? 
Well, let's look at what the three friends do. The three friends move in two directions. They turn to the work of God's hands in two ways. First, they turn. Well, let's look at it. Verse 16. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I love this. We have no need to answer you in this matter. I mean, what an odd response. Nebuchadnezzar, king over everyone, they know that the word he says means life or death, and they say, you know what, we don't even need to answer you. Are they cocky? Why did they respond this way? The answer is because they knew what every single answer responds to. In other words, they knew who every matter answers to, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that every conversation and conflict answers to someone, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that every situation and stress answers to someone, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that every person and every problem answers to someone, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that every desire that they don't even get answers to someone, ultimately, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that ultimately everything answers to God. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you in this matter because there is someone whom everything answers to, and it's not you. They turned to the work of the hands of another when they didn't get what they wanted. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, it's not the people involved that we answer to. Nebuchadnezzar isn't who they answer to. The Babylonian tattletales that we read about, that's not who they answer to. It's not even the three friends' desire is not what they answer to. It's not the situation themselves. I mean, they could say, look, we got the bum deal on this deal. I mean, Daniel's back at the palace. We just got the bad luck of the draw and look where we are. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar wants to build his image and we're caught in the middle of it. It wasn't even the situation that they ultimately answered to. They knew that they ultimately answered to the king himself. And there's only one king who ultimately everything answers to. Every situation, every person, every time you don't get what you want, the king of kings. God alone is king. God alone rules sovereignly over all things. When you don't get what you want, you trust in the work of God's sovereignty. That's where the passage is pushing you. In other words, this will keep you from making an idol out of what you want. When you don't get what you want, and there's that moment. I mean, again, the moment you stop desiring is the moment you're no longer with us. The moment... To be a human is to be a desire factory, as Calvin said. The problem with sin is, is that it's turned into an idol factory. Okay? Desiring, being an image bearer, that's the way we're made. So when we don't get what we want, there's that moment of now what's going to happen. What you want is seeking to rule. If you turn to the work of your hands, you're going to say, I bow to you and you make an image out of it. And you know you do because you're manipulating, controlling, protecting, attacking. You're doing everything you can to keep it. But if you turn to the work of God's sovereignty, that ultimately you didn't get what you want. Ultimately, it's because it's held in his hand. 
that will keep you from turning to the work of your own hands and make an idol. Okay? Because you're going to realize that he's shepherding you. He's ruling over you right now. And this will calm your heart in him right now. In other words, he's in control. He knows what I'm going through. He's shepherding me right now. He knows what I'm going through. I'll say and I'll respond like verse 17, if this is so. When you trust in the work of his sovereignty, you respond like, if this is so, so be it. Okay? All right, the other direction, the last direction, there's one which is to to trust in the work of God's hands, particularly the work of his sovereignty. The other one is found in verse 17. Look at verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Now here it is. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I mean, what is that? Is this the name it, claim it confidence? I mean, is this the, are they theologians of the faith movement? Are these the super saints that have so much faith that they not only say to that mountain move, but they say, God, move! I've got the faith! Right? Name it, claim it. Are they these kind of theologians? Well, we know that's not the case. So what's going on here? What's going on here is this is not about earthly, temporal wants and desires. When they say God will deliver us out of your hand, it's not God will give us what we want. It's way beyond earthly, temporal desires that they believe God will give them. In other words, the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, will always give more to us than your hand can take. What the Lord gives to us is way beyond your reach. It's out of your hands, Nebuchadnezzar. What the three friends end up doing is they end up turning to trust in the work of God's grace. That's what they begin to do. So first, they also, they're also they turning to the work of God's sovereignty, but they're turning to the work of God's grace, that there's something about God and His goodness that is above and beyond the earthly, temporal desires and wants. And they turn to trust in these things. In other words, what we, the whole context here is that God's grace rescues those who are ruined, remember? The context here is they're in the fiery furnace. The context here is they're in an ultimate exile. They're in a captivity, a Babylonian captivity. They're under bondage and slavery. They're lost souls. They're beyond finding. They've they've gone beyond the point of no return. They're ruined souls. And in that ruined soul state, God rescues them. And in that rescue of them... He rescues souls that are ruined by their own sin. He rescues souls that are ruined by the sins of others. He rescues souls that are ruined and stained and darkened by dark situations. And he comes into those who are beyond the point of no return. His grace is of such as that he rescues those kinds of people. He rescues them in such a way that he doesn't just call them out of the fire. He goes into the fire. He gets so close that when we fast forward into the New Testament, he actually gets so close, he takes your place. And it's that kind of God 
that kind of giving God, that kind of gracious God, that they turned to trust. And so they knew that God reaches the ruined. He rescues those who are ruined, and they knew they were ruined. But not only that he rescues the ruined, he reaches the ruined with his very own presence. That's what the fourth man is about. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and says, I, saw, I thought we threw three in there. I see four. And the text wants you to make sure that you realize he's walking in the midst of them. All of a sudden, the unimaginable riches of the presence of God is what God reaches you with. And they're trusting in that. And so the riches of his person, which means he gives the grace of pardon, he forgives sins, he gives the grace of a perfection because we don't have one and he clothes you with it. He gives you the grace of his own transforming power that he gives you new heart, a new mind. He helps you start thinking rightly about yourself and reality, rightly about him. He starts erasing all the bad, hard thoughts you have about him and the wrong thoughts and interpretations you have about reality. He gives you an enabling and a strengthening help. He actually begins to heal you because there are damaging, ruining effects of sin in our own life, the sin that others do to us, the sin of hard situations in a fallen world. And he puts you back together again with the unimaginable riches of his presence. And these friends said, we're not getting what we want They don't turn to the work of their own hands. They turn to the work of his grace. And they knew they would find grace because they knew that the fourth man already worked for it. Do you remember when Jesus is commonly at his high priestly prayer? Do you remember that? Do you remember what he says there? It's amazing. He says to God, I've glorified you on earth. How, Jesus, how did you do that? I'm so glad he tells us. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How do you know that there's a bottomless well carved into the very heart of God that's filled with grace? Because the Son built that well by the work of his own. He did what Adam didn't do. And you and I don't do. He obeyed God perfectly. And then he also did something else. He did what Adam couldn't do for himself and couldn't do for his posterity. And you and I, what we can't do for ourselves and we can't do for our loved ones and we can't do for our children and we can't do for those we care about is that he laid down his life as a sacrificial death to take all the ruin of sin upon himself and remove it. Now you can trust in the grace of God because his son built the well. I have glorified you on earth, Father, for I have finished the work you've called me to do. Okay? All right. These parents discovered that their daughter had disobeyed them. 
and had handled the family car in a very irresponsible way, in a reckless way, that led to an accident. The daughter couldn't afford to pay for the repairs of the car. The daughter couldn't even afford to pay for the traffic tickets, so the parents paid for both. But the parents wanted to instill responsibility in their child, not because they like lists and they want their child to keep lists, but because for the safety and the maturity of the child. So she's not reckless in the car and endangering herself and endangering other people. So they, they formed a pact of payback on how and what the terms would be. Well, the payback system required discipline and it required hard work. The daughter was struggling with both. At first, the parents kept reminding her of her obligations, saying, you know, honey, you're falling behind. And after several weeks of those kind of conversations, it began to frustrate the daughter and it began to frustrate the parents. In fact, finally, after one big blowout reminding session, the daughter exploded and said, Daddy, don't you and Mom know that I realize I did something wrong? I know I was irresponsible. I know it's my problem. I wish all of you could just get off my case so I could figure out how I'm going to fix this thing. And her dad responded and said, Honey, what I really want you to figure out is you can't fix this thing by yourself. When you get to the point that you realize you can't fix the Nebuchadnezzar-like heart in you, that you can't change your own heart, and you can't change the heart of your spouse, and change the heart of your child, and change the heart of a church member, and change the heart of your worker, and change the heart of your boss, when you get to that point, you'll forsake the work of your own hands. And you'll turn to the work of His grace. And you'll trust the one who has a bottomless well of grace made by His own Son that He freely gives to you the grace of His presence. He freely gives to you forgiveness for your sin. He freely gives to you a righteousness that you don't have. He freely gives to you enabling, transforming power. He freely gives to you the Holy Spirit to help you. He freely gives to you His pleasures. He gives to you solid joys. And when you begin to trust Him like that, guess what happens? You grow in grace. And that's the Christian life. From first to last. Amen. Why don't we take a moment? I told you I would tell you what to do when you're feeling convicted. I'm feeling convicted. What do we need to do? Well, this is what we need to do. We need to confess. Confess the work of our hands. Confess the desire that's dominated. What, did we, what do we want that we didn't get And then what did we build an idol out of it with? Confess it to the Lord. And then while we're confessing it to the Lord, we trust in the work of grace even while we're confessing. Oh Lord, I don't even know how to confess. Help me confess. I know this is wrong. Oh Lord, give me the grace of sadness for this. 
Oh, Lord, give me the grace to want to turn away from this and turn to the riches and the unimaginable riches of your very own presence. Turn to the grace of his forgiveness. He forgives you for these sins. And if this is if you're hearing this for the first time and you've. You don't know Jesus. Here's where you begin the same way that your person sitting next to you that might be a believer and has been one for 30 years. Guess what? You're going to do the exact same thing. You're going to begin by confessing your sin and trusting in Jesus. And you will do that for the rest of your life. Not become a Christian for the rest of your life. But trust in the grace of Jesus as a still fallen sinner for the rest of your life. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you that you hear us, not because we're lovely, we know we're unlovely, not because we're righteous, but because we're even ruined. You hear us because of your Son, you hear us because of your great grace. And so we come with full acknowledgement of our sin, we come with full acknowledgement of our even our resistance, full acknowledgement that we're not who... We should be full acknowledgement that we can't even be who we should be. We come fully desperate, seeking your gracious deliverance, whatever it looks like. If it looks like saving, justifying faith for the first time, or it looks like strengthening, sanctifying faith for the millionth time, we come to you for that grace. And we ask that you would bless this part of your distribution of strengthening, sanctifying, helping grace in the Lord's Supper. Amen.